Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a very special episode of the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and straight-up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My hope for our listeners is that you can take away a special nugget of information from each of these interviews, something that will serve you and the people most important to you in pursuing a life built on purpose. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Y Scouts, and today I'm interviewing Michelle Geelan, founder of the Institute for Applied Positive Research and the author of Broadcasting Happiness, the Science of Igniting and Sustaining Positive Change. Michelle had one of the most desired jobs every broadcaster dreams of, a news anchor gig at CBS News. So why did she decide to leave that job to go back to school? We're going to explore that story in this episode. We're also going to dive into the science of positive psychology and the impact it is having with the businesses she and her team are working with. Michelle is a barrel full of energy. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this interview with Michelle Geelan. Joining me today is Michelle Geelan, an expert in the science of happiness and human potential. She's the author of Broadcasting Happiness, the Science of Igniting and Sustaining Positive Change. She's the founder of the Institute for Applied Positive Research, where she researches the connection between a positive brain and success in business, health, and relationships. At Good Think Inc., a positive psychology consulting firm, Michelle and CEO Sean Acor offer consultancy services, seminars, and presentations that utilize specific research in positive psychology to better work performance. Michelle works with Fortune 500 companies on ways to raise employee engagement and drive success. Some of her clients include Bank of America, American Express, Northwestern Memorial Hospital, Boston Children's Hospital, KPMG, and Crane Chicago Business. She holds a Master's of Applied Positive Psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. Her research and advice have received attention from Forbes, USA Today, CNN, Fox, and NPR, just to name a few. And I would be remiss if I did not mention what I believe to be, and I'm sure she'd agree, her two most, excuse me, two most important roles in this world, being a mom and a wife. Michelle, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, and you are spot on. The mom and wife part, it's the best jobs in the world. <laughs> I love it. I figured you'd uh, allow me a little poetic license with that one. So yes. <laughs> uh, super excited to chat with you, Michelle, and I, I want to start this interview off on the right foot, on a positive foot, and you're obviously a big believer in how you start your day has a tremendous impact on how you're going to feel throughout the day. So I'd love for you to share with us, how'd you start your day today? Oh, I started my day with a beautiful hug from my son. He's almost two years old and uh, breakfast time with him and then a workout, um, kind of getting my brain in a good space. And then I set about the things I usually do during the day. So, you know, the, the business challenges and, and projects and things going on. Awesome. 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 I, I, so I want to start, uh, obviously, there's a lot I want to get to today, but I want to start with uh, something I thought was super interesting, and your undergraduate degree was in computer engineering. How the heck did you go from computer engineering to being a news anchor at a major network like CBS? 
Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a crazy story and probably even more crazy after that. Um, so I was working as a software developer at a, com a computer company and would sit there writing code, dreaming about being a national news anchor broadcasting from New York City. And those dreams were great. The only thing is you don't actually start your career in New York. You start anywhere, they'll take you. <laughs> so <laughs> I sent a ton of tapes around the country. I luckily did get one call from El Paso. Um, but what was, what was exciting was that I was able to work from a move up from El Paso to Chicago to New York in three years. And I think the reason that that was significant was that when I got to the network, when I was anchoring those national news programs at CBS News, I was still full of hope and optimism about the good work that we could do for the world given our reach and resources. Um, the only problem was that our newscasts were full of stories of murder, death, destruction, natural disasters, bank failures, et cetera. And then the recession hit, so it only got worse. Um, since then, what has transpired is that uh, you know, I basically got tired of telling negative news stories, but just like so many parents, business leaders, family members, I wanted to understand how we can talk about negative news, not on TV necessarily, as much as maybe around the boardroom, around meeting room tables at work, around the dinner table at home, in a way that actually empowers people, inspires them, and helps move everyone forward in a positive direction so we can overcome challenges better. And so I went to study positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, um, and it, it has absolutely transformed not only my life, but the, now the messages that I share with the world. Instead of sharing you know, car accidents and terrible things happening, I'm able to talk about positive psychology research and the ways that we can all use the science of happiness to fuel happiness and success in ourselves and the people around us. So I'm curious, was it a difficult decision for you to leave what most would think would be, you know, the dream opportunity of being a, a news anchor at CBS to go study something that uh, obviously was a, a, you know, this nagging thing that you wanted to pursue? Was it hard to do? I'm sure people thought you were nuts. Yes, I had a few people say, what are you doing? You worked <laughs> so hard for that job. <laughs> uh, but the thing was, I had had an experience at CBS that gave me confidence that this was the right direction. It was the midst of the recession. We were starting our mornings on the shows with stories of people losing their homes and their jobs and their 401k. So what I was noticing was we were basically starting with messages of helplessness and hopelessness in the face of these great challenges. And so I pitched to my producer the idea of focusing for one week on uh, how we can foster happiness in the midst of the recession. So you've got these great challenges that are happening around you, but how can you take your own happiness and well-being and levels of stress into your own hands and uh, as opposed to waiting helplessly until the recession was over? We got the greatest viewer response from that week of programming than we had from the entire year prior. Um, and what we had done with those segments was we had invited an experts from the field of positive psychology to give us actionable strategies that you can use when, for instance, your child is stressed out because you're having financial troubles at home, or when you're looking at the possibility that your home is going to be foreclosed on, what are the things you can actually do to remedy the situation? Um, and so judging from, you know, based upon that re positive response, I just decided to look into positive psychology more deeply, and I realized that 
ultimately for us to change our businesses, change the trajectory of our schools and our organizations, we really need to be changing the conversation that doesn't just focus on the negative, but actually focuses on the fueling parts of our reality and the parts of the, the story that we can control um, so that we feel motivated to take that positive action to move forward. So that's a beautiful segue. So so you leave CBS, you decide to go to the University of Penn, uh, Pennsylvania, you study under Dr. Martin Seligman, uh, who, by the way, some of his TED Talk, he is just, he's a, an absolute riot. I just get such a kick out of watching him. There's, a, there's a, <laughs> one of the talks, I think it's from like 04 at the very beginning. Uh, he's talking about how he's getting prepped for a, a bit of a soundbite on CNN. And the question was something to the effect of, Dr. Seligman, what is the state of psychology today? And he said, good. And they're like, okay, wait, that's not a, a long enough soundbite. Well, we need at least a, 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 how about two words? And they asked him the same question. What's the state of uh, psychology today? And his response was not good and just absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Um, so while you're studying under uh, Dr. Martin Seligman, you had this epiphany about um, broadcasting. Elaborate on what that epiphany was. What I came to see was that, and this is an epiphany about all of us, is that we are actually all broadcasters. It's not some special power that's reserved for someone on TV or a professional athlete or a celebrity. We all are broadcasters. We all constantly broadcast information to other people. And the messages that we choose to broadcast, whether we do it consciously or unconsciously, either create success or they hold all of us back. The, there's a compelling body of research right now uh, coming out of positive psychology and neuroscience that I think... Uh, this, it, it bucks the trend when, when we're talking about how influential people can be over one another. I think people right now don't understand how incredibly influential they can be over the people in their lives. So now this research is showing us this hopeful, amazing picture that, um, that when we change this and make small changes to the messages that we're broadcasting to other people as parents, as leaders, as friends, we actually can not only influence their mood, their approach to challenges and stresses while we're in the midst of them. But also what we see is that those small changes influence nearly every single business and educational outcome we know how to track. So I'm talking about communicating differently can fuel your entire team's productivity by 31% in just three weeks. Um, we can increase your chances of promotion over the next year by as much as 40% by making small changes to the one uh, to a person's communication style. Uh, the negative effects of stress can be decreased by as much as 23% by changing our story that we broadcast about stress. We've seen this now at companies, at schools, um, and we've, you know, we've been able, and this is we as in me, my colleagues and uh, our, our colleagues in the field have been able to test and see when we, you know, uh, encourage people to, to make an intervention in their life, small changes can have incredible ripple effects. So uh, let's, let's stay on this for a moment. And I want to bring up the, uh, what, what uh, certainly appears to be the never ending debate on nature versus nurture. Are some people in the research and experience that you and your colleagues have dug into, are some people just born happier than others? Yes. The short answer is yes. Uh, genes do account for our baseline of happiness, but what is hopeful about this picture is they only account for a percentage. 
The rest of it is malleable. Um, what really makes the difference is the choices you make on how you process the world. Uh, if you process the world in a more optimistic way and train your brain to do so on a regular basis, you can actually move your levels of happiness up. Um, so, you know, I, I know parents who are parents of multiple children have seen that your child you know, your first child might come out very happy and the second child might come out not as happy. And, you know, we see those effects before you've even had a chance to screw them up. So, <laughs> um, but, uh, but what we do see is even with gentlemen who are in their 80s and who have been practicing pessimism their whole life, or there was a research study that found that if those men can just do a positive habit of writing down three new and unique things they're grateful for from the past 24 hours, just do that each day for a period of six months, they went from testing as moderate level pessimists to low to moderate level optimists. Oh, I'm going to need to put you in touch with my father. Anymore. I'm going to need to put you oh. in touch with my father. <laughs> Good Lord. You just nailed him to a T. Holy cow. <laughs> That's a, that is a, a significant, uh, obviously increase from pessimism to optimism, you know, low to moderate pessimism to, or, or, or extreme perhaps to uh, low to moderate, uh, optimism, just writing down three things. That's, that's awesome. Um, I, I want to talk about your book for a moment and I particularly want to uh, touch on this hidden 31. And for those that have not yet had a, an opportunity to read the book, Broadcasting Happiness, this hidden 31 represents the 31% of people who are optimistic, but for some reason don't choose to express their level of optimism. And as it relates to the workplace and the work that you've done, what can leaders do to expose this hidden 31% and encourage them to, to bring it on a daily or weekly basis? The most important thing to realize as a leader is that these closet optimists are your ally. In it, these people are your allies in transforming the culture. Um, we did this study with Training Magazine and we found cross industry, 31% of people already have a positive and optimistic mindset. So the hard work is done. They're just not speaking up about it. That means that as you're sitting around the, a meeting room and someone is presenting a new idea, one in three people are already probably pretty optimistic and positive about the success of that idea. Uh, they just might not say anything. Now, you already have the people who are speaking up and the people who are speaking up about a negative mindset. Um, but uh, but when we're, we're battling at work for culture and to create a, an engaged culture, a positive one in which people feel empowered, uh, the more that we can activate those people, get them to speak their mind, that actually what we see is that that in turn positively influences the business outcomes that we've been talking about. Um, the, the number one way to get these people to speak up is by modeling the behavior ourselves as leaders. Create an environment in which people feel licensed to praise one another, to talk about all the good things going on, to share connections with their colleagues so that they feel supported. Uh, the more that, that in, an environment and a social script that's alive in that environment supports the expression of a positive, resilient, optimistic mindset, the more that that has that positive influence on, on outcomes. You know, the Gallup organization has been uh, reporting on the state of uh, engagement or lack thereof in the U.S. workforce and, frankly, globally for years. And as it relates to the U.S., the numbers over the last 15, 16 years have been largely unchanged. You've got roughly 
a third of the workforce that is engaged. You've got about half the workforce that is sort of, you know, uh, doing as little as they can to not get fired, uh, collect their paycheck and go home somewhat indifferent. And then you've got about a fifth, uh, who just really are, uh, they're the cancers of the organization and they're almost going out of their way uh, to make life miserable for not only themselves, but, but those around them. I, I'm so curious in the work that you've done. Why do you think there's this uh, long trend of it's just work is just supposed to suck? Like, why is there such a disconnect between happiness and work what why why can't we pull out of this horrible horrible trend that we've been experiencing it's such a shame of what i see emerging from a lot of companies is this not a lot but there's a subset of companies that believe that that the employees have collectively crafted this story that says along lines of what you're talking about you know or i hear a story that says oh if you're having fun at work you must not be working hard enough and so when you hit your sales numbers then, then we'll all be happy you know um, what we see though is that if we can flip the formula and people can actually find greater levels of well-being that in turn then fuels the success nationwide brokerage services uh, which is a, one of our clients and a wholly owned subsidiary of nationwide insurance they decided to change that story at work and to fuel positivity, they ended up bringing up their gross revenues from $350 million to more than a billion dollars in just three years. And normally when you do these kind of projects, the president or CEO says, oh, that was nice, but it must be a bunch of HR initiatives that we internally did. What they, uh, the president of the organization said is, no, without a doubt, we ran with this positive psychology research. We implemented it from the top down, uh, bottom up, sideways and every ways. And what we saw was that we changed that story at work. People operated in a different way and then it fueled long-term success. You know, one thing I often get asked um, as far as, you know, positive and negative people at work is who's stronger, the positive person or the negative person to set that culture. Um, the thing is uh, what they're often thinking about, and I, I've been there, I've worked at organizations where we've had or one or two of these people is they're thinking about that really negative, really expressive person, right? Present an idea. They're the first ones to tell you five ways that it's not going to work. Uh, they, they are standing around the water cooler in the break room complaining about stuff. They're creating rumors and spreading information that might not even be true, and it's just getting everyone so worried. Um, usually, the most negative person is also the most anxious and expressive of that negativity, and it can transform how everybody approaches their work. What we see now, it's not the most negative or positive person in the room that can win that battle for culture. It's the most expressive person. Mm. Um, so if we want to rewrite that story and we want to change our engagement numbers, the best way to do that is by consciously speaking up. So my book focuses on all of these strategies that we've seen at work uh, that people have used that have created those tangible results, um, small things that people can do to, to encourage others and in turn to be uh, more vocal and expressive of, about their positive mindset. Mm, interesting. Very interesting. The most expressive. It makes a lot of sense. You know, I can think about meetings that I've been in uh, and, you know, an idea is shared and you look around the room and it usually, uh, at least in my experience, shows up in some of the nonverbal, the body language of an yeah. individual who's super expressive, <laughs> just brings the, it, it, it takes the air out of the balloon. 
Yeah. 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 Uh, we've worked with a, someone out in California. He's a manager at an IT company. He would receive all the bugs that had been reported overnight in a spreadsheet, print it out the next morning, and then go to his team for the the morning meeting. And he would stand there and say, these are all the fires that we need to put out, Ugh. right? He started the meeting with stress and with with this kind of mindset that got everybody uh, anxious. And then he would say, okay, so how are we going to tackle this stuff? Let's go. Um, and so then he heard about this happiness research and, and how when your brain is in a positive state, it, it fuels performance. Um, so he decided to start with a different, a completely simple and easy intervention, but it's completely different approach. So it was one thing he was grateful for about life in general, one thing he was grateful for about the team in general, and then one thing he was grateful for about someone specific on the team. So he was delivering a piece of praise each morning to a new and different person. He said it completely transformed how the meeting unfolded. They still got to all the fires, but he called them business challenges instead. Um, But people felt differently about it. And he reported that uh, productivity increased, team cohesiveness increased, and then he also just had a better day at work as a result of that small change. Is there any sort of uh, research uh, that indicates ratios around the number of positive versus perhaps not so positive things and, and how that impacts performance of organizations? Yes, and it's so fascinating. So this was done by a handful of different research colleagues of mine. One uh, pair of married happiness researchers looked at it in relation to your your relationships uh, with your spouse. And they found that the magic number there for a flourishing relationship was five positive comments or uh, to every one negative comment. So the, the magic number there was five to one. In the business setting, Marcial Losada looked at high-performing business teams and he found that the ratio is around six to one. And so this is really interesting. He invited business teams into the boardroom, had them, he gave them one hour to do mission statements and strategic plans for their group. Um, so he tried to simulate a high stress uh, task. And, um, and then he filmed the whole thing. And what he found was that the teams that also, the teams that were high performing, so he had solicited outside data like customer satisfaction ratings, bosses' approval ratings, and how profitable those teams were, the ones that were in the high performing category, those were the teams that in the boardroom had a, uh, a positivity ratio of six to one. The mid-performing teams were the same teams that were about two to one, and the teams that were low performers had a positivity ratio of one to one. Um, and and these are it's not just about going around and saying, oh, I think your idea is great. It's about how many um, how many creative, positive comments were made that built upon someone else's? Were you just defending your own position or were you asking questions that helped allow for discussion? Um, but yes, the, it, that is scientific evidence that how positive we are in comparison to how negative can actually impact results. And by the way, there's always that one. And I think that that's a really important statement um, to, to, to the way our brain works. We do need to stay grounded in reality and in touch with what's really happening in the business climate in our, at our organizations. Um, we can't just disregard all that. And sometimes we do need to take a hard look at ideas in a way that might not feel so positive. There's a place for that. But 
Ultimately, though, the ratio of six to one makes more business sense than one to one. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's good to know that uh, that there are some some proven data out there to support that. Now it's a matter of how can you convince leaders out there that this data really does work. And I'm curious to that end. In working with uh, the nationwide brokerage services, I, I hope I got the name right. Um, was mm-hmm. the, was the president there? The leadership team, as as you and your colleagues came in and shared this data, was there resistance to adopting it? Was it, oh, that's just airy fairy, this happiness stuff, blah blah blah. You know, why don't you sprinkle some fairy dust and you know park your unicorn at the front door? <laughs> <laughs> and tactics and operations. You know, is, is there resistance to this? Yes, and we got it from him initially. Actually, uh, he's a numbers guy, and so and we knew that. So we said, okay, well, let's sit down and talk about the numbers. And so we presented the research that we're is being done, um, show, connecting the positive brain to business outcomes. And he said, okay, I'm convinced. And I think that I think the data, the science right now is it really it transforms the conversation because it's no longer about what we think intuitively works. It's about what we're finding actually works. Um, The other thing is that we might know, hey, gratitude is good for you. When I'm in a grateful state, I feel better. Things seem to work better for me. But now we now because of the research, we know that actually the best thing you can do is write down three new and unique things you're grateful for, do it for a period of 21 days to start. If you can keep the practice up for six months, these are some of the results on average that this positive habit can create so that we, we know the, the smallest amount of energy that we need to expend on this new habit um, as opposed to spinning our wheels and trying these very complicated things that ultimately don't work. I want to switch gears for a moment, if I can, and I want to talk about a particular book that had a just an unbelievable impact on me, and it's Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And there was a particular concept uh, in the very early part of the book, and he's talking about happiness. And the, the quote is that happiness cannot be pursued, it must ensue. Um, what is your take on that view that happiness is not something you can chase? Instead, it's something that is an outcome of other contributing factors. The number one thing that we recommend for people who are feeling, for instance, a sense of mild depression is to get their brain off what I think is the number one question that's on it. Am I happy? Am I not happy? Am I not? Am I happy? Am I not happy? Right? Their brain keeps slot rattling back and forth from that. Sure. I think when we when we make happiness the goal, it actually does us a disservice. Um, and so and and so in that respect, I completely agree with him. Um, and so you know to get people's brains off of that question, oftentimes we'll say, go do one nice thing for somebody else. Right. So their brain isn't focused on their own happiness. They in turn do that nice thing, feel a burst of happiness and that happiness can ensue. Mm -hmm. Um, We in the research define happiness as the joy that we feel growing towards our potential. And what I love about that research, okay, (laughs) the joy you feel growing towards your potential. Interesting. I didn't mean to cut you off. I just think it was a very profound definition. 
Oh, it's fine. Yes. Well, I wish I could take credit for it, but we actually stole that from the ancient Greeks. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I love about this definition is that it allows for us to feel that sense of joy through the ups and downs of life, right? Because we can be growing towards our potential, even in the hardest times. And oftentimes we find out who we are in those moments. So happiness is not about the chocolate bar or the momentary pleasure. It's something deeper. Uh, and you know, when our brain is focused on doing the things that helps generate that deeper sense of joy, that's when I think we really ex experience life on a new level. That's so interesting, you know, and it, 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 and I, you know, not to bring up uh, Dr. Martin Seligman again, but I, I back to that. That's okay. that, I'm a huge fan of that. Oh, him. great, good, good. I figured, right? You know, I, I remember back to this one particular TED talk. It, it could be the same one, and in it was talking about the three different types of activities that lead to, you know, the most profound sense of of happiness or well being. You probably use the term well being, and and if my memory serves, it was pleasurable activities, engaging activities, and meaningful activities. And all three of them do contribute to a sense of well-being. But the interesting distinction between the three of them, you know, a pleasurable activity, buying a new car, maybe getting a new pair of shoes, like, sure, you'll, you'll experience some joy, but it's very fleeting. There's no sustainability to it. When you move up to the engaging activity, spending your time doing something you're really good at. So you're feeling a sense of accomplishment, um, certainly brings a sense of joy or well-being, um, a little bit more sustainable than the pleasurable activity. But the third category or this, this, this uh, type of activity that he referred to as meaningful, and I believe the definition was something along the lines of contributing to a cause or a purpose greater than your own self-gain, had the most profound and sustainable impact on an individual's well-being. That said, um, in the companies you've worked with, is that concept resonating? Uh, and, and so much of this for me is around this idea that very purpose-driven organizations, those that recognize that they're trying to make a meaningful difference in the world and use their business as a force for good are the ones that are slowly but surely uh, gaining a tremendous amount of notoriety and, and for years now have been outperforming all of the more normal indices, whether it be the S&P 500 or the Dow or whatever it is. They're outperforming their competitors. What's been your experience in these three types of activities and how it's being viewed in the business landscape with the leaders you're working with? I think that's a phenomenal question, and it absolutely hits the nail on the head. We, have, we work with a skincare company, and they'll tell you, yeah, we're a skincare company, but really what we are is a personal development company and a community development company, meaning it. that they want, yeah, I love it, right? Yeah. They want to bring out the best in their employees, and then they want to empower their employees to bring out the best in their families and communities. So I, that, I think, is where you really find this deeper sense of purpose, this connection to something greater than yourself. Um, so we have developed a metric called the success scale. And by the way, anyone listening can go ahead and take it for free on our website. Yeah. Well, well um, share the URL real quick. Broadcastinghappiness.com. Fantastic. And so the success scale tests for the three greatest predictors of long-term levels of success at 
companies. Um, so it's mostly focused on the work domain, but if you just ignore the words at work while you're taking it, you can test yourself in any domain of your life. And what we found is that there's, so the three greatest predictors are your levels of work optimism. Do you believe good things will happen? Do you have an expectation of good things? Do you believe your behavior matters in the face of challenge? The second one is our story about stress. Do we view stress as a challenge or a threat? If we view it as a threat, our brain actually turns on it in a different way versus if we view it as a challenge, our brain turns on to its highest levels of potential. Uh, but the third one speaks to what we're talking about, and I find it fascinating. Um, so originally we asked questions be, to help our, us understand how supported employees were by their organization. Because the thought process was, in order to be successful, you need all the resources at your fingertips. You need a manager who supports you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and while the answers to those questions were interesting and somewhat predictive of long-term success at work, what we found is if we flip the questions around and ask things, ask questions to understand how supportive people were of their colleagues and their organizations, right? Something outside themselves, something greater than themselves. If a colleague is falling behind on their work, how likely are you to step in? If they need a listening ear, do you open your door to your office and have them sit down? Do you, it, it, you know, um, initiate social engagement? When we understood the answers to those questions, that's when we really got a good reading and a good prediction on their long-term success at work. And so that's, that I mentioned this earlier, but that's where we got the data that showed us that if you score in that top quartile of support provision, you're actually 40% more likely to get a promotion over the next year than the people who score in the lowest quartile. Um, and also those people are, who are giving of themselves to others are also the ones who typically have higher levels of well-being. Um, give, and it, so it's scientific proof that what you get what you give, which I think is fascinating. It seems like such a simple concept and so common sense. And uh, boy, the uh, common sense is, doesn't seem to be so common these days. Uh, certainly rings true. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's frustrating. It really is because the what what you're talking about, what we're talking about, what your colleagues have been researching, what this whole movement around positive psychology has been unearthing. Is, is it's not like splitting the atom, right? I mean, this is not the most complex stuff. It's so right there in front of us and it just requires uh, an open mind and a little bit of courage to accept it as the reality and begin acting in a new way. And as you put it, changing the narrative around uh, how we approach everything. Yeah, and it doesn't take a ton of effort or a lot of time. That's the craziest thing about all of this. There was a study done with people suffering from chronic neuromuscular diseases and, and therefore in pain all the time and on pain medication. Doctors just had them for two minutes a day journal about the most meaningful positive moment over the past 24 hours. They did this for a period of six months. At the end of that six months, doctors were able to drop their pain medication in half. Wow. 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 That's a, that's unbelievable. Unbelievable. That's great. Um, I, 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 I could talk about this for hours and I want to make sure I get to a, a couple of other topics. Uh, one topic in particular with, I guess, a couple of different questions. Um, you've worked with some really big brands out there, uh, working with them to increase their levels of happiness in the workplace. Have you had any experiences or research 
around identifying or being able to really hone in on a new potential employee's overall level of happiness and how it aligns to the organizational level is this you know so much of recruiting is is the resume the right resume for the job description which frankly uh, I think is an incredibly tired way of of using that as the the you know the primary uh, deciding tool it's outlived its usefulness not to say that there isn't value in making sure that the person you're going to hire can do the job but people are more than what you see on just a sheet of paper and understanding somebody's overall level of happiness their level of optimism and the level of impact they're going to bring to the organization is there anything you and your colleagues have been able to uncover or unearth that would help on the front end as organizations are looking to bring in the right people who are going to help strengthen what culture already exists? I think for the vast majority of positions, you're looking for somebody who is optimistic and has a resilient mindset. Um, and so, you know, there was, we talk about, let's talk about Dr. Martin Seligman again. Sure. <laughs> um, it, you know, years ago, he got a call from his friend who was the CEO of MetLife at the time. And the CEO was struggling because they would hire a ton of insurance salespeople each year, put them through training, spend all that time and effort. And then at the end of the year, a good percentage of them quit yep. or, or were let go you know, for one reason or another. Sure. So he said, what, what are we doing here? We're wasting all this money and I, we need to fix this problem. So Dr. Seligman suggested for the next year, trying a test group uh, and hiring highly optimistic sales professionals. Uh, and, so, um, and so all he did was they did the normal screening process, but they just added in a few questions that tested people's levels of optimism. What they ended up finding was that this 10% of the workforce, this rogue group of highly optimistic people, outsold the other 90% by another 89%. That <laughs> doesn't, yeah. it's, a, it's an amazing number, and it doesn't seem that shocking, even though it is probably to most. Right. Um, but because think about it, if you're expecting good things to happen, yeah. if you believe that negative events are temporary and local, you're going to make that sixth and seventh and eighth phone call. So for an insurance salesperson, that's great. I mean, that's the kind of mindset you want. Now, there are some professions, they're few and far between, but it is actually good to have a pessimistic line of thinking as long as you can compartmentalize. So the whole point is you don't want to have pessimistic thinking at work and then also bring it home to your relationship because that will not be very good. Um, but you know, if you're an attorney and you're drafting up contracts, it's a good thing to be able to think of all the things that could go wrong and protect yourself against it. If you're a safety inspector. You want to be able to find the pro the potential problems, but for the vast majority of jobs, it is good and better to have a more optimistic line of thinking. So if you can sift out people, um, sift through the people and find those people, uh, that's great. And you can do it through more formal assessments. You know, on uh, on our website, we have a more, the University of Pennsylvania offers them to gauge uh, the, their thinking, but also it can be done just through questions and really listening to answers. What was one business challenge that you experienced at your last job and how did you, how did you process it? And then what did you do about it? Mm -hmm. That will tell you a lot about a person's mindset um, and then you can present them with a challenge this could happen at this job what how would you handle it what would you do 
um, you know, it's, it's about understanding how they approach business challenges and also they approach challenges in work relationships that they might experience. So along these same lines, um, uh, around you know how we are experiencing our work environments and what we do day in, day out for most people, 8, 10, 12, 14 hours a day, there's a framework that's pretty widely recognized around how people view work. You're either in a job, you're in a career, or you're in a calling. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, as, as I just, uh, you know, hearing your short story and the time uh, and what you've shared with us with the time we've spent today, you know, you started off and, and what, and, and if I may just uh, sort of summarize what I think I heard, and by all means, correct me if I'm wrong, you, know, you started your career in a job, you were in computer engineering and somewhere along the the way you're like, you know, this probably just isn't for me. And you made a change and you, know, you, you shared your El Paso, Chicago, New York journey and moved towards what probably felt like uh, moving towards a career, maybe even a calling, and you're going to be this news anchor. And as you were experiencing that, there was this deeper uh, annoyance, uh, this deeper sense of passion, this deeper sense of curiosity around, wait a minute, there's something bigger here that I'm supposed to be doing with my time that I'm given this precious time we have on this crazy spinning thing we call earth. And you dropped everything and pursued what I think is safe to call a calling. Do you have any advice at all or insight at how can individuals out there who might be stuck in a job or maybe even in a career and they know there's something bigger for them to pursue? Is there any advice or insight you can share that helped you overcome whatever fear or hesitation uh, you had as as you made some pretty sizable leaps over the last uh, several years of your life? Well, I think the most encouraging thing is that while someone might hear this story and think, oh, okay, well, in order to achieve a calling, I need to move careers or I need to move jobs or I need to move cities or, do, you know, companies sure. or whatever. Sure. Um, what we What we see, though, is that in every single position that's been analyzed, which has been a number of them across industry, there are about a third of people who turn that position just into a job and about a third that make it a career and another third that make it a calling. And I'll give you a great example that I heard that I love. Uh, we have all at some point in our lives been to the hospital. Yep. We know that nurses go around and can either make your life very wonderful or not so much. Um, but it's, so what we see with nurses is that some of them, it's just a job and you can almost feel it when you're talking to them. Totally. Others believe it's a career. There's this one nurse that, um, that, you know, has been featured that turned it into a calling and it's not just one, obviously there's many more people like this, but he would go around to, through the ward where everybody is in a coma and he would swap out the paintings on the wall. So, and what his, and so, you know, the researchers who were talking to him said, why are you doing that? I mean, these people are in a coma. They don't even know what's going on. And he said, I'm just making the environment the best possible so that when they wake up, they know that there's been a change. They know that there, that there's someone taking care of them and that they're loved. Wow. I just got goosebumps. Yeah. Yeah. Everything just sort of twinged. Wow. 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 That's powerful. I, I think no matter what, what job, quote unquote job, you know, whatever you do for your nine to five, you're in right now, you can turn it into a calling. It's just about asking yourself, 
how can I take this deeper? How can I serve the collective better? How can I serve the people around me? What, what's the meaning embedded in the work that we're doing? How do I feel grateful for being here? When we can tap into those moments, we can transform anything we do on a regular basis into a calling. I, I, I think we're going to have to end it right there. I can't imagine yeah. we're going <laughs> to. I don't know that we're going to be able to top that, Michelle. Wow, what an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. I, I want to share your URL once again for those of you that want to go learn more about Michelle and the work she and her colleagues are doing. Uh, as well as you've got to check out the book, Broadcasting Happiness, please go to broadcastinghappiness.com. Michelle, what a pleasure. It has been so great chatting with you. I cannot thank you enough for joining us on the Work That Matters podcast. Uh, wish you nothing but the best, and please continue doing what you're doing. The world needs it. Thank you so much. And same with you. The, the more positive broadcasters we have out there, the better off our world will be. And you're a fantastic, amazing example of that. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Michelle. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, folks. You can obtain a transcribed version of this show and hear more interviews from the Built on Purpose podcast by visiting our website, whyscouts.com forward slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I have two things for you. I'm hoping to get some bonus questions answered by Michelle from our community. So if you have any questions you'd like her to answer, please drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com with your question, and I'll certainly forward them on. Second thing, if you enjoyed this episode, there's a couple of others I think you'll love too. Patty McCord, former Netflix chief talent officer and the current principal at Patty McCord Consulting, talks to us about how we can be innovative when it comes to our work. Second, Louis Efron, author of How to Find a Job, Career, and Life You Love, talks to us about the power of purpose and how asking the right questions will lead you to a life of meaning and purpose. Once again, it's yscouts.com forward slash podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening.